Uh, it is a delight to have Angela with us. Angela is a pastor uh, of a church in Cairns, spirit-filled man. He's also a psychiatrist, so he's fixed me up the last couple of days as he's been staying at our house. <laughs> or, 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 or he's decided it was hopeless, one of the two. I'm not sure. Uh, I have to say I've learned more in the last couple of days just talking, and, and I'm thrilled for this time. I'm uh, actually... Uh, very excited. I, I, after talking with him, I'm realizing I wish we had more time. Uh, we'll have to do that again. But let's pray, and then I'll let him talk. Well, we just thank you for the privilege again that we can get together. Thank you that you're the one who equips us. Jesus, you gave gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and uh, we just thank you for that. We receive Angela as a gift to us today. Ask that you would bless him, uh, that he would communicate clearly the things that need to be communicated and not the things that don't, but Father, that our hearts would be open as well. We say, Holy Spirit, would you lead us into truth? Uh, we simply want to be uh, open to you, and thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Angela, if you'd come. We're going to use this mic. I, later on, we're going to have some time for questions. And because we're recording these sessions, we're going to actually give you the mic when you ask a question so that we get the question on the recording as well. It always bugs me when you know, you're listening to something and someone's asking, answering a question and you never heard what the question was. So then you have to kind of guess. So when we pass you a mic, if you have a question later on, you'll know why. Um, not right now, thanks, Russ. I might, I might use it later, but for now I'm good, thank you. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to take five seconds of waffle so that Tim can get the, the balance right with the sound, because we haven't done a sound check yet this morning. So, um, <clears throat> That's not waffle. <laughs> um, but I will tell you about my family. So I am married to Carolyn been married for 27 years. We've been married almost as long as South Africa, and South Africa has been a free democratic nation. Um, and we have two children. We have two teenagers. Our daughter is 17, Robin, and our son Seth is 14. Um, this morning, Robin is probably at drama class already, and Seth has probably been spent, spent the last three hours building a computer or doing something <laughs> IT-related. <clears throat> if I was home, we'd probably have gone for a bike ride or for a walk or something, but because I'm not there, I, I'm almost certain he will have been playing on his computer. Um, so that's what they do. That's how they occupy themselves. And today, I'm here in large part by their grace, because they permitted me to the opportunity to come and, and be here. So I'm thrilled to be in Launceston. I'm thrilled to be with you guys. Um, my only sadness is that this was meant to have happened a year ago. Uh, and at the very last minute, we had to can the whole plan for reasons we are all unfortunately very familiar with. Um, but when the borders opened and it became possible, um, Ross and I had a chat and we thought, well, we'll have another go. And so here I am. I'm hoping today to be of assistance. I come to you not as an authority on anything. Um, I have spent a lot of time studying. I have 
filled my head with all sorts of stuff which may not necessarily be useful to the rest of the planet, but I am a bit of a nerd, so I found it interesting. Um, but I'm hoping that out of that, something useful is available for you. But more importantly, I get to say something now that I didn't get to say yesterday, because I know I'm amongst believers, so I can let my hair down just a little bit. <clears throat> more importantly... <laughs> <laughs> do, you have, do you have to put up with this at home, Tim? <clears throat> I said I was not going to have a go at her. But I, but I also see where she gets it from. <laughs> I can let my hair down. You may not see it, but I actually have wonderful flowing locks. <clears throat> but... The success or failure of this morning comes entirely down to the extent to which we allow the Holy Spirit to minister into our hearts. I have lots of theory. I have lots of information. Most of it, hopefully, is truth. But at the end of the day, whether or not it's meaningful and helpful is what the Holy Spirit does with that in our hearts. I'm not preaching today. If you want to hear me preach, come back tomorrow morning. Um, <clears throat> but this is a teaching session. This is a bit didactic. But the risk when we do something that's teaching is we become all intellectual. And as much as we need to, I'll talk a lot about thinking because that's what this is all about. And the risk if we talk a lot about thinking is we kind of stop at the thinking. And it is only when the truth sinks in and the Holy Spirit uses that to transform our lives, that we actually change. And so I'm not here to try and solve people's mental health problems. Oh, Russ. <laughs> Maybe for you, Russ, because we get to spend a bit more time together. <laughs> what I'm really hoping to at least contribute something to today is to help you because you encounter people with mental health problems. And um, my aim is just to try and share something of what I have and hope that that is beneficial to you. So the aim of what we're going to do, we're kinda gonna, we've got about three hours together. Um, I'm not going to speak for three hours, mostly because I'll probably just fall over at the end of that. Um, but really because I've been working in this field for more than 30 years. And I am so full of nonsense that I can talk for days on end and be no use to anybody. So I'm going to talk briefly, have a whole bunch of interactive time, and actually try and answer some questions, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll do the same again, and then we'll do the same a third time. That's kind of an overview of how we're going to do it. Before I say any more, hopefully I've had enough waffle for you, Tony. <laughs> Before I say any more, um, can I ask us if we pray again, please? Um, and that's not because Russ's prayer was ineffective, but because I actually just need to change where I'm at. Heavenly Father, it is with humility and a sense of waiting that we come before you this morning. God, would you inform us? Would you inspire us? But more than anything, would you change us? Yes. Lord, please help me to represent you well this morning. If this is not for you, then this has no place. 
Would you help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That is a photograph of seven random books off my bookshelf. Sorry, I'm trying to get a timer going. I'm going to ignore it, just to give myself a prompt. If you keep tapping it, Mary, it should stop. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> that is a photograph of seven random books off my bookshelf. Um, it is a very small proportion of the literature a psychiatrist has to work through in your training. So in the five years of training, psychiatrist is meant to <clears throat> process a reading list which, when typed up, runs into six A4 pages. We are not going to cover that ground today. <laughs> but if we canvas people, so what is mental illness? What are we actually talking about? One of the helpful definitions is that mental illness is an illness which affects a person's thinking, their emotional state, and their behavior, and it disrupts their ability to work or carry out other daily activities and tends to significantly interfere with their relationships. That is kind of a technical definition. That's the definition I've taken out of the Mental Health First Aid Manual, which is a really useful thing to, to look at if you're wanting a slightly deeper understanding. I have a, my own kind of take on that, though. That I think mental illness is when the mind is unsettled to the point that the soul, the very essence of who a person is, is in such anguish that life becomes difficult to do. If you think enough about that, sorry, Ross, I don't want to get in your way there. If we think enough about that, that actually isn't limited to illness, though. That can be any number of events, experiences in life that can have that impact for someone. And so this morning, it's into that context, really, that I want to speak. So we're talking about people who are distressed. We're talking about people who may have problems. Now, we'll talk a little bit about mental illness, but I'm hoping this morning just to give us a bit of a perspective and a context for that. I've never had a pina colada. I live in the tropics, so I don't mind getting caught in the rain. I don't do yoga, but I do have half a brain. <clears throat> oh my. <laughs> I have a friend who a few weeks ago um, I was talking about this and um, they said to me, you're a bit of a brain nerd, aren't you? And I said, uh, yeah, I probably am. I'll take that. I'm quite happy to accept that because the facts and the figures about the brain absolutely enamor me. So I'm going to take you on a brisk tour through what the brain is about. It weighs about 1.4 kilograms. If you, shoved I'm sure it, heavier. <clears throat> if you shoved it into a blender, I won't go there because... <laughs> this is a mixed gender audience. And there are distinct differences between the male and female brain which don't show a fav point favorably in favor of men. So I'm not going to go there. <laughs> 
come to me afterwards if you want to know the specifics. But if you take the human brain and all of the cranial contents and you shoved everything into a blender, you'd get about 1.7 liters of puree, which you don't want to spread over your dinner because it's not helpful. But if you took the surface of the brain and you stretched it out, because the brain is not smooth, if you took it out and stretched it out, it will cover an area that's roughly similar to um, about two A3 pages laid side by side. Um, a little bit smaller than that. If you held it, it feels like custard or soft tofu. So if you pick up the human brain, you'll be really careful that you don't shove your fingers right into it. <laughs> I'm saying all of that because it's important to understand that what it is is actually quite sensitive. It's quite fragile. It's made up of nerve cells, which are essentially the functional component, and then a whole bunch of support cells, which are essentially the infrastructure hold everything together. It's a specialized organ. It's divided into two hemispheres. That's why the half of brain I showed you is essentially looks the same on the other side. Um, each hemisphere has got two lobes, uh, four, um, four lobes, and then there's a bunch of other specialized structures that all form part of that. It effectively is floating around in a bag of fluid inside your skull. To put it in context, your brain is about 2% of your body mass for the average human being. For me, it's lower than that because my body mass is above the average human being. <laughs> so Ross has more brain power than I do. Um, sperm whale has a much bigger brain, but it's far smaller relative to its size. So if you took that and you put it in order and you said, well, how do we compare? Well, you have three times the mental computing power of a chimpanzee. And about 100 times the mental computing power of a sperm whale. We are the pinnacle of brain power of creation. But it is essentially just one big electrochemical organ. You've got all of these nerve cells that are effectively electrical. Signals pass along nerves in the same way the electric electricity comes down the, the wires to power the lights. But the nerve cells, where they come together, aren't actually in direct contact. So we don't have soldered and fused connections. What you have is a small space, and the signals pass between the brain cells by a chemical process. And those neurotransmitters, those chemicals, are actually responsible for making sure the signal gets in the right form to the next nerve cell. But in that 1.4 kilogram organ, there are between 86 and 100 billion nerve cells. That's about the same number of stem cells, uh, of support cells. So you're really talking almost 200 billion cells inside that small space. As if that wasn't bad enough, each of those nerve cells has between 1 and 10,000 connections with other nerve cells. Now, anybody in the room who is enamored by mathematics? <laughs> so if you, your, your brain is already starting to figure out, that's a lot of connections. <laughs> We're talking trillions, and I, I haven't risked trying to do the calculation because my wife is a maths lecturer, and if I got it wrong, I would not be able to support that, so I decided not to go there. Um, <clears throat> but at each of those connections, where the chemical transmission happens, that is mediated by a whole bunch of different types of chemicals. And each of those different types of chemicals has any number of different types of receptors to which it can bind. So 
Billions of neurons with thousands of connections is now being multiplied by an additional factor of multiple different types of chemicals with multiple different types of receptors. If you take serotonin alone, um, which is probably the neurotransmitter most people are familiar with because of depression and anxiety, it has 15 different types of receptors, all of which have a slightly different function. And then we get into the real fun stuff, which I won't go into too much detail today because this is the real nerd stuff. Within the cell, every time the chemical transaction happens, within the cell, a whole bunch of other messenger systems then translates the chemical signal back into an electrical signal and has it go on. So there is an inordinate number of points at which the system can go wrong. Is it any wonder two different people with depression don't look the same? Is it any wonder that in a group this size, there are no two people that think the same. So the question is, how do all of those connections come about? Because the interesting thing is, you didn't have all of those trillions of connections when you were born. Most of those connections have actually been formed through the course of your life. <coughs> because everything we experience, everything we're subjected to, everything we subject ourselves to, changes the connections within your brain. That's how effectively you remember things. When you have an experience, your brain starts to build new connections between neurons. That then sets up a circuit which provides the basis for that memory. Good experiences and bad experiences both influence the connections in the brain. It's a little bit like pruning in the garden. When experiences are remembered, when experiences are lived or, or thoughts are, are replayed, the brain says, well, hang on, this is significant, so it lays down new circuits and it might remove some others. <clears throat> that organ has any number of problems that can go wrong. I'm not going to take you through everything about mental illness today, but I want to just put this slide up there because... Um, There are multiple labeled and described mental illnesses that people experience. In psychiatry, what we do is we categorize everything so that we can communicate about it more easily and it helps us to remember. You don't remember six pages of books by trying to remember every individual. You, you lump things together, you, you work it all out. So we kind of divide mental illnesses into those major groups. Um, so you, people will be familiar with anxiety disorders, you know, people have arachnophobia or um, people have PTSD, people have social phobia, various other anxiety problems, depression, um, bipolar disorder, the other mood disorders, schizophrenia, which most people are familiar with because it's quite an obvious and totally disruptive disease. only occurs in about 1% of the population, so it's actually fairly rare. Um, eating disorders are quite common. Then you have personality disorders. You know those people that are really hard to get along with? They usually have some problems in that area. Um, degenerative disorders, this is the mainstay of what I do these days. Um, dementia is at the core of my work now. Um, and then developmental disorders like autism and Asperger's syndrome that really have to do with how the brain lays down its circuits in early life and the impact that has on a person's social development. And then the addictive disorders. And I was saying yesterday, as I was uh, doing some work with the City Mission guys, um, is that um, addictive disorders are actually mental disorders. 
They affect human behavior, they affect emotions, they're part of this gamut, and a lot of the symptoms associated with addictive disorders are the same symptoms as mental illness. They're in the same big pool, and they have to be understood and approached in the same way. That's as much as I'm going to say about that, unless you ask me more about it later. <clears throat> I did want to put this up there, though. Just to put in context how common these problems are. So this is data taken by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. This is, these are purely Australian numbers. And those anxiety disorders, depression and other mood disorders, and substance use disorders are the three most common groups of mental illnesses affecting societies around the world. In the Australian population, during the course of their lifetime, one in every three women will develop an anxiety disorder. Now, pause for a moment and think about how much that is. Every third lady in this room, theoretically, will have an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. That is a terrifying number. <clears throat> at any given point in time, so if we went out in the street and we did <clears throat> a straw poll of the population, one in seven people we came across would have a current anxiety disorder. <clears throat> Depression is slightly less, one in six women, one in eight men. Substance use disorders, one in every 19 people in our society has a substance problem. If you put all of that together, now this is just the three most common disorders. <clears throat> the others are on top of this. Every fifth Australian today has one, at least one of those three problems. 20 out of every 100 Australians has either an anxiety disorder or depression or a substance use disorder Eight of those 20 have more than one. Only one-third of those people are actually getting any help. And I'm going to say something that <clears throat> I hope doesn't scare you, but I'm going to suggest that in your congregation, that number is probably higher. And that's not because Christians are more prone to becoming depressed or anxious, but that's because Christian communities are welcoming and opening and depressed and anxious people are more likely to feel comfortable there. So the nature of what we do, the nature of our place, is actually that we open our arms to the hurting. So we are probably a higher representation than society has because of that reason. <clears throat> If I, if I illustrate it another way, if you went into a psychiatric hospital, almost 100% of the people there have a mental illness because that's where people with mental illness go. It's the same with the church. Distressed people come to the church. And so we are probably facing a lot more of this than we think. It would be horrendous if only 35% of those people actually got help. A little bit about some of the treatments and things that we can do. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of like to think about the treatments and interventions for mental illness in three groups. The first is the physical things. Now, this is what you need pretty much either a GP or a psychiatrist to get involved in. So we use medications, we use shock therapy, we use transcranial um, magnetic um, stimulation. We do a bunch of physical things. We still do a little bit of surgery, but very little um, 
it's really just a, a very small proportion of very severe obsessive compulsive disorder where surgery becomes a tool. But for everybody else, those are kind of the, the groups of physical treatments that we use. Psychosocial interventions are the second mainstay of intervention for mental health. So using cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal therapy, mindfulness therapy, and mindfulness-based therapies are becoming more popular these days. We use a lot of education. Um, and then obviously looking at other things in people's psychosocial world to try and help them get back on track. And historically, those are the two areas that have been the mainstay of psychiatric treatment. The third thing up there, though, <clears throat> has become the foundation of our approach to mental health problems. And that is making difference in people's lifestyle. In our next session, we're actually gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I want you to say this. The College of Psychiatrists in Australia, which is sort of the umbrella body that licenses us to work, um, and, and actually gives us our qualifications to work in the field. Every now and then we'll put out a set of what they call clinical practice guidelines. And clinical practice guidelines are basically a summary of kind of all of the available scientific evidence at the moment for the various treatments that we use and really how we should approach certain problems. So if we look at depression, we look at all the evidence and there's hundreds of tablets you can use, there's the other treatment modalities, there's a whole bunch of different psychotherapies and it kind of says, well look, the logical way to approach this from a medical point of view is to follow this kind of algorithm. You follow this pattern, and, and if this doesn't work, then you go to that, and if that doesn't work, you go to the next thing. We have always included lifestyle changes as part of the big picture. Two months ago, the College of Psychiatrists put out a new clinical practice guideline for depression. For the first time, that has become step one. And the reason that is, is the scientific evidence for the impact of lifestyle changes in mental illness has suddenly skyrocketed. Now, that's, it's always been true. We've never been able to prove it. We now can. And once you can prove it, then you can sell it to scientific people. <clears throat> and now we can prove it. As an example, if we moved from a Western diet to a Mediterranean diet, for people who don't have depression, they would reduce their risk of ever developing depression by 35%. Wow. That is a scary number from a, from a scientific point of view. It's not, it's not a token reduction. It's not, oh, it might be helpful. That's profound. If you already have depression and you adjusted your diet, the extent to which you improve is also significant. That's just one thing. Stopping the hamburgers and eating more lettuce. Pizza? Pizza? I'm an expat South African. To say that sounds almost sacrilegious. <laughs> The idea that you can't live your life primarily on red meat just offends everything of my heritage. <laughs> but the evidence says otherwise. The evidence is very clear. 
I'm going to pause there. We'll carry this on in the next session. I'm going to pause there. So let's have a bit of interactive time. I've said a bunch of stuff just to spark some interest, to spark a bit of conversation. You know a little bit about me. You know that Russ is wary of me and Mary doesn't like me. (laughs) 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 But what I'd like to do is... I am going to go a little more into the lifestyle stuff. I am going to go a little bit more into (laughs) some of the issues around those other lifestyle things and around resilience and also just a bit about our interaction. And I think we talked about the second session being a bit about active listening or effective listening. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the next patch. But now might be a good pause for us just to chat and fire away. Um, I I haven't checked if it's on. Hello. Thanks, Angelo. Um, my question is um, in regards to the lifestyle changes. Is is the challenge that a lot of those changes, um, maybe the results happen in a gradual fashion, whereas there might be a more dramatic result uh, when it comes to medication? And does that make it a challenge for people to stick to those uh, treatments? I'm going to cover the lifestyle stuff in more detail, but I'm going to answer that question with a personal example. I don't have depression. I don't have anxiety disorder anymore, theoretically, but that's a different issue. Um, I have no more anxiety disorder than everybody else, let me put it that way. But about 16 or 17 months ago, I injured my knee. And um, every time I did any form of exercise, it would just swell up and try to do a bit of rehab, and after a few months, everything seemed to be fine. Then I go for a jog on a cricket pitch with my son, and suddenly, boom. So it actually put me right back, and I became very cautious about doing anything that involved my legs. <clears throat> a few months later, I thought, I've got to have another go at trying to rehab this, and um, got into my bicycle on a stationary trainer, just started to ease into it. No, seemed to be doing okay, not too bad. And then out of the blue, a friend said to me, actually, why don't we go for a cycle on Saturday and I'll buy you breakfast? She was thanking me for something I helped out at her home. So my son and I, on a Saturday morning, went out for a bike ride with her. We did this for a couple of weeks, and he seemed to be okay, so we'll try and push a little bit further. A few weeks after that, um, oh, she challenged me at some point, when, when your knee's right, we should try climbing Glacier Rock. It's just an outcrop above Cairns. And I haven't been bushwalking in years. And um, Saturday morning came around, and uh, we weren't going to cycle for other reasons. I thought, oh, let's, let's do the first part of Glacier Rock Walk, just so I can test how the knee is going. As soon as I feel any twinge, we'll stop, we'll come back down. Started on the walk, the knee seemed to be okay, so I just kept going. And did the eight-kilometer round walk um, with the 550-meter elevation, which, I, as I say, I haven't done forever. And... Um, <clears throat> That afternoon, um, my wife and I had friend, uh, coffee with one of her colleagues from work, and I arrived at the coffee, and they looked at me and they said, what happened to you? You're almost euphoric. Because the benefits of the exercise are not delayed. The benefits of the exercise are immediate. The challenge with exercise is actually not in the continuing, it's in the starting. 
Our bodies and our brains are very interesting. Is your brain releases endorphins, which are far more potent than morphine. It's an opiate, it's intrinsic, it's what your brain uses to modulate pain. It's far more potent than opium. Have you ever wondered why joggers jog? Because they're addicted to endorphins. Um, it's just an, and it's part of what happens when you get going. But at another level, our whole motivation process, the whole process by which we do things, is we actually have to get started. Once we get going, we do it repeatedly for a little while, it becomes a habit, but its benefits then give us positive feedback, and so we keep going. And so the challenge actually is getting started. Once you've been to the routine, I had to go for a walk yesterday afternoon because I knew I wasn't going to get my cycle this morning. What's happened to me? <laughs> I used to be comfortable just putting my feet up, doing some stuff in the shed, doing some stuff in the garden. Now I have to go and do physical exercise every Saturday morning. I'm only two months into this new madness. But this is what happens. It's, it's about just getting that started. So it is right. So many people seem to struggle. But it's actually that initial part that's the struggle. Once you start to get the rhythm going, it actually becomes far easier to continue. Doesn't the medication take longer? <laughs> Didn't you say the other day that the, the medication actually takes longer to have an effect? So if you take an antidepressant for depression, within 24 to 48 hours, you'll start to experience the side effects of the tablet. And all medications have side effects because they're extraneous um, molecules. The benefit of the medication, as in an antidepressant for depression, takes at least two weeks before you'll start to feel any improvement. And the improvement that you start to experience won't be the improvement that you're looking for. You're not going to start to feel happy in two weeks. You might just feel a little more energetic. You might just be sleeping a little bit better. The actual benefit in terms of the antidepressant effect takes four to six weeks. <coughs> now they will work. And they actually are important because they, they restructure how the chemistry that has gone wrong is working. And that's an important part of what they do. But there's a significant delay in terms of the clinically beneficial effects of medications. Go out and exercise and you feel better straight away. So Russ, there's a question there. Oh, no. <clears throat> uh, with the medication, I take Cetraline for anxiety and depression. Um, I don't feel that it actually does anything for me, but if you stop taking it, well, then you notice, um, yeah, you notice things. And so is it actually addictive or... Um, sertraline is not addictive at all. Um, in fact, no antidepressants are addictive. Um, some of the sedatives that get used for depression are, but the antidepressants are not addictive. One of the challenges with treating depression is that, and anxiety, is that the depression is not one symptom. There's a whole bunch of symptoms that occur in the disease. And so different people, for different people, different symptoms are more significant and have more impact in how they feel. And so what you find is that when you treat people, if the symptoms that are the main problem for them are the ones that go away straight away, then they feel like the medication has had a massive effect. If the medication treats some of the symptoms, but not all of the symptoms, the person might not actually feel a whole lot better. 
But in reality, they might actually be better in some respects. And then when they stop the medication, those other symptoms come back and then they actually feel worse. So you're moving a little bit forward. You maybe haven't gone all the way. When you stop taking the medication, you actually go back. But because the main problem hasn't been resolved, the medication doesn't actually feel like it's done much. So one of the things I do when I'm actually working with patients is we actually try to rate the symptoms at the beginning of treatment. And we actually rank what's all hap what, ha what is happening. And then we use that to monitor what's happening with the treatment. So if after a few weeks the person says, well, that's gone, that's gone, but I've still got this and this, and this is what's really causing disruption in my life. And we say, well, the medication's working, but it's not doing exactly what we needed to do. So do we need to look at something different? Or do we need to look at adding a different type of treatment into the picture to get the whole situation patched up? But the other thing to remember with um, antidepressants like sertraline, which work on serotonin, serotonin is an intrinsic chemical within the body, but it's incredibly potent. Our bodies are very sensitive to serotonin, and that's why antidepressants have the kind of side effects they do. Um, and that, when we use medications, we actually increase the concentration of your body's serotonin very much. When people stop taking the medication, the serotonin level comes down very quickly. And that sudden drop in serotonin causes a lot of abnormal and unpleasant effects. So a lot of people, if they're taking medications like, like sertraline and they stop them quickly, they actually feel quite bad. And so it's not actually an addiction problem, it's actually the serotonin change. So when people stop medications like antidepressants, they actually need to stop them gradually so that the serotonin comes down gradually. Um, if you take sertraline, your serotonin level goes up within 24 hours. If you stop it, your serotonin level comes down within 24 hours. A drop like that actually is very unpleasant. Um, and so a lot of people have problems when they come off medications, but that's not because of addiction, it's actually because of what's happening in the body. Uh, Angelo, you just made a point on one of your previous slides um, about two, the brain is 2% of um, mass, but 20%, using 20% of the energy. I just wonder if you could draw a comment about that again. Um, it takes up very little space, but it uses a great deal. Have you ever wondered why, when you have been involved in a really complex um, or extended conversation, or a day that has involved a lot of thinking, a lot of concentration, why you feel so tired? Actually, you feel more tired than if you've had a workout? Yeah. It's because you've used up all your energy in thinking. And there's a really good reason for that. Because... <laughs> and there's a reason for that. The reason we need and use so much energy for thinking is that thinking is incredibly potent. Um, we hopefully are going to get to talk a little bit about what thinking does to our brain. Um, you can change so much of your brain's function. You actually change the connections within the brain by changing how you think. How you handle thoughts how you approach things, and it's not just what you think about. What you think about is important, but how you put the thoughts together is also important. And so we use, we use an incredible amount of energy just to run this processing unit. Um, but there's really good reasons for that. I mean, I would have loved to have delved into 
um, what your brain has to do to wiggle your index finger. Um, because it's just plain fascinating. But then I'm a nerd, so. <laughs> a real quick question. You had mentioned in, the, uh, in your presentation about how the guidelines have changed in literally the last few months. Is the, the science of psychiatry changing? And how, how much in, just, just give us a, a hint of what's happening. Okay, let me try and collapse a few hundred years of history into five minutes. Um, <clears throat> scientific method has been consistent for centuries. So what scientists do is we come up with an idea, we say, we actually we wonder why that happens that way. And so we postulate, well, maybe it's because, so we're saying, you know, why is Angelo bald? Or well, maybe it's because of the soap he uses. And so science says, well, look, there's got to be a way to prove whether that's the case or not. So what we do is we organize an experiment. We say, Angela's bald because he uses the wrong kind of soap. We try different soaps. We try it on a whole bunch of volunteers who don't mind going bald if that happens. Um, and we say, well, we tried it on 100 people. 80 of the ones who used that soap became bald. So there's a very good chance that soap makes you bald. The fact that the 80 people who became bald also were the men in the group who happened to be the third generation bald guy in the family <laughs> means that maybe it wasn't just the soap. That may be just coincidental. So that method has been used to try to understand and make sense of what's happening in the brain for centuries. The problem with the brain is that it's very hard to take it out, fiddle with it, and then put it back in and have the person leave the room. <laughs> so we have been stymied with actually getting to the nitty-gritty. Because we have to really, we have to see how people behave through all of their life, try to make sense of all the different things that are at play, and then wait for them to die so we can look at their brain. One of the reasons I became a psychiatrist is I accidentally, one afternoon, was walking through the medical school in my fifth year of medicine, and I was at a loose end, I was on my own, I was bored stiff, and there was a door open to a lecture theater, and there was a visiting lecturer from New York who was giving a talk, and I had no idea what he was talking about. But as I walked past the front door, I could see the big screen at the front of the auditorium, and he had the most amazingly colorful pictures of the brain. So I've never seen anything like that before, so I'm going to stick my head in and just see what this is about. So I just snuck and sat in the back row. As it turns out, the guy was a shrink, <clears throat> and he was involved in research looking at obsessive-compulsive disorder, and the pictures that he had up on the screen were pictures of a new imaging technique PET scans had just been discovered in the US, and they were starting to use them in research. Now, up until that point, we had CAT scans, we could do MRI scans, so we could look at how the brain was structured. We could look at what the brain looked like. But the problem is, is that most of the trouble in mental illness is not happening in terms of the gross structure of the brain, it's actually happening at the intracellular and the subcellular level, so you can't see that on the scans we had. PET scans and SPECT scans suddenly we could give somebody <coughs> some glucose that we kind of labeled with something that would light up on a scan, 
and then we have you put you in the machine, <clears throat> turn the scanner on, and it was like, wiggle your finger. And then the brain lights up because the part that's making the finger wiggle actually has to absorb more glucose because now it's working more. And so suddenly you could actually see the differential activities happening in different parts of the brain. It revolutionized the way we understood these things. And I walked out of the lecture theater. I'd never, ever had any intention to become a specialist of any kind. I'd always wanted to be a GP. That was my aim. I walked out of the theater. I thought, psychiatry is where it's at. All the other disciplines in medicine have made most of their major discoveries. Psychiatry is at the starting blocks. <clears throat> I want to be in this discipline. And when was that? That was 30 years ago. 30 years later, we have an understanding of how the brain is working now, not just in terms of which lobes are responsible for which parts of the body, but we know which cells and which connections are responsible for which specific functions within what you do. We can actually talk about which part of your brain is activated when you're saying certain things. So if, I mean, we could start talking about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the precuneus and the and anterior geniculate, and those are the nerdy things that are really fun. <laughs> <laughs> because 30 years ago, we didn't really know that stuff. But now we can actually functionally look at the brain while it's still doing its job and understand. And that's why the evidence that's coming through now is so much better. We're starting to dissect the subtleties of genetics. I'm bored for genetic reasons. Interesting. It wasn't the soap. <laughs> wasn't the, soap. <clears throat> the sadness for me is that my dad went to the grave with more hair on his head than his two sons put together. Because it skipped a generation in our family. <clears throat> but we actually are now looking at how the subtleties of genetics, which parts of the genome are doing certain things, it's mind-blowing. Because what it's doing is it's saying, well, actually, 30 years ago, I mean, the history of medication in psychiatry started in 1950. That's how new it is. In 1948, John Cade discovered that you could use lithium for some people in his um, pantry in Melbourne. Um, <coughs> two years later, the first manufactured psychiatric drug hit the market. And they weren't even trying to make a psychiatric drug. They were trying to treat nausea. And the only reason they created a psychiatric drug is that they used psychiatric patients in asylums because they didn't need ethics to do that. So they literally experimented on mentally ill people with the drug they were trying to manufacture for nausea. It didn't help the nausea, but they were less crazy. So the clever companies said, well, maybe we could market this for psychiatry. No one's ever done this before. Revolutionized the field. Half the patients suddenly got discharged. Um, but that's how new the field is. So we started out discovering medications entirely by accident. We then started to think, well, the problem with doing that is you have lots of side effects, you have lots of issues, so maybe we can be more targeted based on what we knew. We said, well, then we get to find medications we target different parts of the brain. Maybe if we targeted some dopamine receptors and not others, we'd have better side effect profiles. So they started to refine it, which is called rational drug discovery, because you were actually thinking a little more targeted in the process. But we still had problems because even though we did that, not everybody got better with the medication. Not everybody had the same side effects. We still had major problems. Now we're starting to say, well, hang on. If we can have our medications change that small part of that big gene, we can have this result. 
completely changes what we do and how we approach it. So, it's your fault, Ross, for asking me that. Um, I'm going to do one last half question, and then we're going to take a break and we'll come back. <clears throat> so... This is all very fascinating. Thoroughly enjoying this. Um, I've got a question asking for a friend. Can, can, you, can you do anything? <clears throat> You're asking for me, I know. It's okay. is, is there anything that you can do to improve memory, especially when you had a lot of birthday cake? Eat less birthday cake. <clears throat> and that's not being facetious. The best thing you can do for memory is to have fewer birthdays. <clears throat> The second, the, best, the second best thing you can do for birthdays is don't actually eat the birthday cake at your birthday party. Those lifestyle things, we're going to talk about it in a bit. The impact that they have for depression is almost as significant as the impact they have for dementia. Okay. To be continued. To be continued. <laughs> Let's take a break for a few minutes, folks, just to stretch your legs and get your circulation going. Snacks in the back, 10 minutes, we'll be back.